This morning, we're going to cover a, a lot of scripture and a lot that I would normally probably break up into a couple messages, but in the nature of our series, we're, we're working through the entire life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So we're covering all four gospels at the same time. And uh, that's a lot to bite off and a lot to chew. And uh, so we're sometimes maybe not going into as much detail on different things as we could, or as maybe other times in other series we might. Um, But we're working through. And this morning what we're doing is uh, in covering a large portion of Scripture, we're kind of giving you the run up and setting the stage for the maybe the most popular, most well-known discourse Uh, in all of scripture, if not all of human history. When you hear of Jesus and you hear of his sermons, what do you think of? You think of Jesus preaching. Maybe what's the one that everybody's heard of, even if they don't know it, they've heard of it. The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And really it ought to be the Sermon on the Big Hill. Because it's really not much of a mountain. It's it's just a big hill that looks over uh, Capernaum and And that's where he would have given this discourse. But all of these events that we're going to look at this morning set the stage for that. And it gives you an idea of why he preaches this sermon. And and the Sermon on the Mount would have likely been, I think, probably took place more than just one afternoon or just a couple chapters. I think it may have been a couple days that he spent there. Uh, with people, teaching, instructing them. And, and, and some of the, the big themes of the Sermon on the Mount is that, that Jesus is challenging the teachings of the proud and the religious leaders of the day. He's challenging the establishment, in a sense. He's challenging the legalism. He's challenging the religiosity. And he's calling people back to the true message of the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets who, like Jesus, taught that God doesn't want uh, simply your obedience. He doesn't have like this big list of rules and he goes, follow this and then I'll love you. He wants your heart. He wants you to love him so that he would instill in you a new heart and give you even the ability to do those things to honor him. And this morning, what we see this morning is we see Jesus tee the ball up for this sermon. He tees it up for this message, okay? And uh, so we're going to move through a lot of scripture. We're going to be in Mark. We're going to use Mark's account this morning, starting in uh, verse twenty in, ver- in chapter 2, verse 23. And uh, we're going to see Jesus confront again, like we'll see many times, the religious leaders of his day. And we're going to spend some time talking about uh, legalism and, and religiosity and religion and how that is such an enemy of the gospel And then we're going to see over the rest of this year, through the Sermon on the Mount, will actually take us through the end of 2014. And then we'll probably take a break from this series, do something different after the first of the year. Uh, But but we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches on, okay, so if, if religion, if legalism isn't the way, what's the way? And he lays it out, the way to live the Christian life, the way to build his kingdom, to be and build his kingdom on this earth. So let me pray, and then we're going to tee it up. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that uh, that he is good, that he loves us, that he lived the life that I fail at all the time, and uh, that he paid the penalty for me on the cross so that he would give me his life and give me his righteousness and take away my sin. Father, I pray for any here this morning who who haven't made that decision. Maybe today they would, uh, through the truth of your word, uh, be called toward you and, and repent of their sin and trust Jesus as I have. It changed their life. And Holy Spirit, I pray you'd fill me and speak to me and through me as uh, we unpack your word. 
I pray that, uh, Holy Spirit, this would set the stage well for uh, where we're going, looking at Jesus' teaching through the Sermon on the Mount and uh, all that he would have to say to us about living in and being his kingdom people. Um, Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Uh, pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would take your word and twist it, lie to us, accuse us. Instead, teach us your truth and change us to be like your son, our big brother. We pray this through him. Amen. So we're in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. It says this, it starts out this way. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, let's stop there. What's the Sabbath? The Sabbath would have been the Saturday of the week. Sabbath literally means a day of rest. It literally means to rest. And what's happening is Jesus is with his disciples. I believe... um, Maybe I'm wrong here, but the way I understand the text here is that that this passage here and then the one we're going to get to happen likely in the same day. And then maybe they're walking through the field on the Sabbath to go to the synagogue, to gather together as God's people, to worship, to learn, to all of those things in the synagogue, right? And they're walking through the field and what do they do? They grab some grain, they pull off the heads, they rub it in their hands and they take it and they eat it and pop it in their mouth. Kind of like you, you ever go out in the garden? You ever go out in the garden maybe before you've picked everything? And you're walking through the garden and you grab off a pea pod and you maybe rub it, you open it up and you pop it in your mouth. Maybe you throw the whole pod in your mouth. You're like my dad and that's what you do. You just eat the whole thing. What, what, do, you, what do you do? You know, that, that's what they're doing. And, and Matthew in his account of this tells us that the reason they did this was because they were hungry. They were hungry. And so they're walking through the field, and and curiously, there's a provision in Jewish law that, well, here, let me read it to you. It's in, you can write this down if you're interested in reading it yourself. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 through 25 says, If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but don't put any in your bag. And he says, And if you go into your neighbor's field of standing grain... You may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. And the reason for this is God has provided a provision to cultivate a sense of generosity in his people and to care for those who are in need. Right? He wants his people to be generous. Why? Because he's generous. He wants his people not to hold on to his... His, his blessings too tightly. Why? So that they can hold on to him. And so as people walk through the field, here, yeah, you can, you can have some, but, but don't take advantage of that, right? Don't, don't be the person who, who just gets stuck on the system and you're always relying on the handout and you never do anything on your own, but you're just kind of, you put the sickle and you harvest it and you take it for your own advantage. No, he's saying you can, you can have some of this and, and people be generous and that's what you, you ought to be generous and then there's freedom for them to take without maybe the humiliation of begging. And it's a, it's a good law. It's a good thing. But the Pharisees, when they look, the, the Pharisees, just so you know, if you're not familiar with them, they're the religious leaders of the day. Okay? And the Pharisees, 
when you, when you boil it way back, their original intent is very good. What do they want to do? They want to honor God. But what gets in the way of them honoring God? Their attempt to honor God gets in the way of their, want, of their desire to honor God. And then they, they get so wrapped up in their rules that they lose sight of the one that they're honoring. They lose sight of Jesus. And, and one of the things that they do is you'll see them. Jesus comes and starts preaching. Hey, why don't you get back to what the Bible really teaches? Why don't you get back to, to true religion, to, to true love for your Lord and for your God? And this is a big threat to their system and to their laws and to their rules. And so now we see them following him around in the field. You ever have people just follow you around and look for you to do something wrong? You're like, yeah, I had little brothers. I had that happen, right? And just following me around, like they're just waiting for me to mess something up so they can point it out and run to mom, right? You ever experienced that? Maybe it's just me. You had better, you you had perfect little brothers and sisters, right? Maybe you're the little brothers and sisters, you don't want to admit it. But they're following him around. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And what we get here, again, is just kind of, well, hello, legalism. Hello, religiosity. That's what we see here in the Pharisees. Why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, we just talked about the fact that it was lawful for them to walk through the field. It was lawful for them to take some grain. So that can't be what they're talking about. The fact that they're so bent on this is because it's on the Sabbath, on the day of rest. And there is, uh, I think it's in Exodus 34 where God's word says, you, you, you shall rest from your labors on that day. You shall, you, you shall not do any work so that you can rest. And the Sabbath, just so you know, the Sabbath is a really good thing. You know why God instituted the Sabbath? Because he knew if not, we would just work and work and work and work and get what? Tired. And we lose our sight of him. And and so he gives us, the the Sabbath is a day off. Who's in favor of a day off? It was God's idea. It was God's idea for you to have a day off, to rest, and to be restored, and to refocus on him. And I think I've said this before, but curiously, you look at the history of the United States, and the the Jewish Sabbath was on a Saturday. uh, Jesus rose on a Sunday, so the church chooses Sunday as a Sabbath. You come to America getting started, and, well, should we do the Jewish Sabbath or the Christian Sabbath? Let's take them both. And we get two days off. <laughs> but the idea of a Sabbath is to have a day off, a day of rest, where you cease from your labor and you restore your soul by looking back to your Creator. That's the idea of a Sabbath, is of rest. And I've taught in this passage before, and, and I'll say what I said then, the biggest enemy... I believe of a Sabbath, or I would say even the gospel, is legalism. Is legalism. As I said, Sabbath means rest. It, it's, by the way, Sabbath is more than just taking a break. It's more than vacation. Why do you, where's, what's, what's vacation about? It's about vacating. I'm running away and getting away. Vacation. Sabbath is restoration. Recreation, recreation. It's vacation might be part of it, getting away, right? But for what purpose? So that my soul is restored, so that I, I fill my tank, so that I can make it through this next week of work. Curiously, if you look at Scripture, you look at creation in the Old Testament. God creates everything in seven days, and on on, on that on that last day, He creates mankind, and then 
Man's first full day on this earth is a day of what? It's a day God rested. It's a day of rest. It's to begin the week. To rest and work from that rest then out into my life. To where I'm restored so that I can work. Not, necessarily, not to recover, but to get restored and energized and then go, right? That's the idea of practicing Sabbath and of rest. And it's a gift of God. Well, as we talked through this a few years ago, I said Sabbath has two enemies. Busyness is one, and legalism is another one. The two big enemies of it are busyness and legalism. Legalism is an enemy even of the gospel as well, I believe. But depending on, I don't know which one you struggle with more when it comes to Sabbath, but is it, is it busyness, you're too busy to rest, or is it legalism, you make rest work? <laughs> and it depends on a number of factors. One is your age. Depending on your age and maybe the age of your kids or the age of your family depends whether or not busyness can be a huge enemy for you to to enjoy Sabbath and enjoy Jesus. Another one maybe is your church origin or your church background can can play a huge role in your understanding of Sabbath and whether you struggle more with busyness or, or maybe more with legalism. Maybe you come from a very legalistic background and it's check this off, check this off, check this off, check this off. There we go. Now God loves you. But that's not the gospel, is it? Maybe it's your job. Maybe your job is more demanding and so you're busy. Or maybe your job is, uh, you, you're, you work in an environment where it's a legalistic environment. And then that affects even all of your life to where it affects even your ability to enjoy Sabbath. Maybe it's your connection to technology. That's not mine, by the way. If you know me, you know that is, right? That's a huge one for me. And, and busyness, it's harder and harder and harder to escape. You're always connected. you got to shut it off. And both of these symptoms are idolatry. With, with busyness, busyness says, I, I despise rest because it robs me of something else I'd rather be doing. I'd rather be doing something else. I don't want to rest. I think probably the reality is most in our church and most in our culture today struggle with this aspect of it. But the one that Jesus addresses here when he's uh, walking through the grain field on the Sabbath and when we see him, him heal a man on the Sabbath, he's addressing the enemy of legalism. And with legalism, it's an idol of self. It's my rules. Or maybe it's someone else's rules, man-made rules that are more important for me to fulfill than God's. And legalism robs me of Sabbath. It says, I despise rest because it confines me to do things I hate doing. Because on Sabbath, I have to do this. Or I can't do this. It confines me. And the focus of Jesus' words this morning, and I believe even through then... Uh, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount really confronts this idea of legalism and replaces it with, with his grace and living in the kingdom. Some of you don't rest and take Sabbath because you're too busy to rest. Some of you do rest, but you're a legalist. And as a legalist, you make it cease to be rest because in your rest, you have to fulfill all kinds of rules. You've got to check off the list and you make your rest into work. And some of you don't, get, don't rest at all because you grew up with legalists who made rest too much work. Well, this morning as we talk about legalism, as we get into this, and I do this a lot anyway, but just to clarify again, when, when I talk about legalism, a lot of times I'm going to use that term synonymously with religion or religiosity. Now, James tells us that true religion, pure religion is to look out after widows, orphans, and those in need. But when I speak of legalism, when I speak of of religion, 
I'm not speaking of pure religion. I'm speaking of defiled religion. And so when I say religion as an enemy or religiosity as an enemy, I'm not talking about what James, Jesus' brother, was talking about. I'm talking about that being defiled. I'm talking about religiosity. And so here's some things about legalism you need to know and understand as we look at how Jesus addresses these people. First off, legalism denies sola scriptura. Do you know what that is? Who is it, Dr. Wednesday? You heard Dr. Ock speak. That you, you covered this issue of sola scripture and scripture alone is our final authority. It's one of the pillars of the Reformation. In fact, it's one of the pillars of our church and of the Evangelical Free Church. Here's what our statement of faith says. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in its original writings. The complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, here we go, here's the sola scriptura, it alone. It is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. And I know when Rock taught a couple weeks ago, I think we ran out of time, didn't we? So we're going to try to, I, I need to talk with you, and we need to figure out a time for you to come back and finish that. Who, who was here that night? It was a great evening, wasn't it? And uh, just publicly, I just want to thank you for that. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, amen. One of the things of the Reformation that would come up, though, is one of the, and one of the things early in the Evangelical Free Church that would come up is when somebody denied sola scriptura and they came up with these other rules of their own that legalism does, the question that would come up is where stands it written? Hey, that's a great rule. Show it to me in the Bible. Because if it's not in the book, it's not worth a look. <laughs> right? I mean, if it's not in the Bible... Okay, you can have your rule, but boy, it seems like a waste of time to me. Where stands it written? Legalism denies sola scriptura, and it adds on its own rules. It looks at God's list of rules, and it says, hey, those are great. Those are great, God. That's a good list you put together there, but here's a few more. Here's a few more, just to make sure. I don't know if you got all of them, so let's add a few more. And I told you that the intent of this was good originally, right? The intent is God, God lays out this room is, 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 think of this room and its boundaries, its walls as God's will. And you're free to go anywhere in this room and enjoy what God has created for you and, and enjoy all of it. But if I'm a le- but if as soon as I leave this room or I go outside of it, then I'm outside of God's will. I'm sinning. I'm, I'm rebelling against him. And what legalism does is it says, boy, I don't ever want to go out that door. I don't want to ever get outside of God's will. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a new room inside of this room. And I'm going to make sure I stay in that room. That way, in case I go outside of that room, I, I never, I'll, I'll never get outside of the room that God set up for me. And that's the original intent. And that's good and that's honorable. But the problem is in doing that, they added restrictions. They added walls that God never put there. That God never had there. And, and, and they, they defy scripture even. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 says, Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found to be a liar. Legalism denies the sufficiency of Scripture. It also is full of technicalities. Legalism and religion is full of technicalities. 
Remember, Deuteronomy gave a provision in the law which stated if you were hungry and found yourself walking through someone's field, you're allowed to pluck some of the grain to feed yourself. But what do the religious people do? They say, oh, what are you doing? That's not lawful on the Sabbath. Well, they're walking through the field. They're grabbing grain. They're rubbing it in their hands. They're eating it as they went. And the Pharisees spoke up and challenged them. And their complaint is, is, by the way, not that they're taking the grain, but they had a rule that said that should be done the day before. You should prepare that meal the day before. And, and they actually had a tra- what's called the tradition of the elders. There's 39 other rules that would keep you from breaking the Sabbath. Right? You need to keep the Sabbath, but if you really want to keep the Sabbath, then keep these, these 39 rules. Do some work so you can keep the Sabbath. Isn't that crazy? Do this so you can rest. God says, rest. Just come to me and rest. They had 39 categories, and Jesus had broke at least four here with his disciples of those categories. He had, he had winnowed, he had threshed, he had reaped, and he had prepared a meal. He did all those and broke their tradition. He wasn't breaking the law of God. Jesus was breaking their laws. Now, now some, some in this room, you, you grew up maybe in a church where uh, you were bound by legalism. And in, in trying to obey God, you found yourself not running up against his will and his rules for your life, but the rules of leaders who, who made extra rules for you to follow. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. It sounds, like, it sounds to me like avoiding work on the Sabbath had been turned into a lot of work, didn't it? These 39 categories. And what in doing so, the Pharisees set themselves up then as the lords of the Sabbath. They were lords of the Sabbath. They're in charge of it. And just remember that phrase because I think that's part of how Jesus addresses them. But of all the technicalities that they put together, they had this list of 39, the technicalities would always work in the favor of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You ever notice that with somebody who's legalistic? The technicalities always work in their favor. How many of you have ever had an argument? I did a couple weeks ago with your cell phone company. Anybody? Oh, well, yeah, your rate changed because that's in the fine print. It's a technicality. Yeah, but you told me in the big print, this is a great deal. Yeah, but you should have read the fine print. I know, I'm sorry, it's a technicality. That's what legalists do. They, they show the big print to you, but then as soon as you go, oh yeah, all right, they go, well, let's see, but here's the fine print. You also have to do this, 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 and this. It's really not in your favor, but we want you to think it is. Here it is, here's the big print. Just think about that for a while. Or, or it's like the government. In fact, the, the people who create laws and our legal system, hence the word legalist. How's the government work? They make a law that's good, right? And there's a good law, and in order to follow that, though, what do they do? They keep adding to it. And then they add another law on top of that law, and then another law, and then another law, and another law, and another regulation, another restriction, another law, and finally you've got a whole mess of law. I mean, it's like the IRS. The IRS, that, there's legalism personified for you, right? They, they, they complicate life. They make it harder and harder and harder for you. I hope they don't hear me say all this because then they'll make my life hard. They make life harder and harder and harder, right? And you hope, you know what you hope about a legalist or a religious person, a religiosity-focused person? You hope that you never get 
a knock on the door from them. Because if you talk to them, they're going to complicate your life. They're going to make it harder. And you will not wait for them to be able to just leave. Right? You agree? That's that's legalism. That's the legalistic nature of the Pharisees. They, They said you couldn't travel any distance on the Sabbath. That was another one of their rules. But... Curiously, there's a technicality. It was okay for them to travel and to follow Jesus around, right? Well, because they're protecting the Sabbath. They're protecting their rules. So we're okay. I guess they got off on a technicality. Well, this morning's text in large part is a passage where Jesus battles these religious people. He battles the legalists. And and he does it a lot. It's not just today. But the issue at hand today, as I said before, is the Sabbath. So here's how he responds to them while they're following him around. He said to them, verse 25, Have you never read what what David did? You guys follow David, right? You like David? You're a fan of David? Oh, yeah, I like David. David's a good guy. He he was king. Yeah, go David. Do you know what David did? When he was in need and he was hungry... He and those who were with him. Jesus is saying, see what you're seeing here. I'm I'm like David. It's me and it's those who are with me. David pointed to me in case you wondered, Jesus says. You remember how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. You remember that? Remember David? Here's the story he's, he's speaking of. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Uh, David is running from Saul. He's running for his life. And David went to the town of Nob to see Ahimelech the priest. And, and Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. Why are you alone, he asked. Why is no one with you? The king has sent me on a private matter, David said. He told me not to tell anyone why I'm here. I've, I've told my men where to meet, where to meet me later. Now, what is there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. And the priest says, we don't have any regular bread. But there is the holy bread, which you can have if your young men have not slept with any women recently. Don't worry, David replied. I never allow my men to be with women and when they're on a campaign. And since they stay clean, even on ordinary trips, how much more on this one? And since there was no other food available, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. It had just been replaced that day with fresh bread. The bread of the presence also is called the show bread. It's set up in the tabernacle uh, before God, always in his presence to show his provision for the people in all things, right? That all things are his and and it's by his grace and his goodness that, that we're sustained and we're fed. And it would sit there in the temple for the week, or in this case, actually the tabernacle. And then at the end of the week, a new batch would be made and put there 12 loaves, one for each tribe of Israel, showing God's provision for all of Israel. And at the end of that week, then the priests were allowed to eat that bread after it was a week old. Well, nobody else could have it. Nobody else could eat it. But, but what happens? David's hungry. He shows up with his men. He's running for his life. He's like, we need something to eat. You have nothing? What, what, about, the, what about the show bread? What about the bread of the presence, the bread in the temple? How about, can I have some of, can we have that? The, the priest gives that to him. Why? Now, if the priest was a legalist, he would have said, no, nope. Sorry, you're going to have to starve. I'm sorry. I know God says I should care for the needy and care for the poor and give to those who are in need, but I know you're in need, but, but I got, we got this rule. Like we got to keep this rule. And, and 
And what happens here is Jesus shows by telling this story again that, yes, God's law is there, but it's there for us. It's there for our good. God's, God's word is not a rule book. It's a roadmap for how we ought to live our life. And his protections are there for our good to protect us. They're not there just to be obeyed. They're there for our good. And God's greater heart is for our good, for the good of his children. And so it was okay for them to have the bread. Jesus is saying, you're, you're, you're being way too legalistic about this. And later he would call the Pharisees out for the fact that they held their word higher than God's word because they remembered all of their laws and all they put down, but they forgot what was in God's word, what had happened with David. Later in Matthew 15, the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus and from Jerusalem. They say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why do they break our age-old rules, basically? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, well, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your rules? Why are your rules more important than what God would have you do? Well, this tradition of the elders is an oral tradition. It was later written in the Mishnah. That's a whole other piece. But Matthew tells us in Matthew 12, you can read this on your own. He, 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 Jesus carries his argument a little further than what Mark records. He says, haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, there's one here who's greater than the temple, but you would not, but would, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. Again, if you knew God's word, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. And then he kind of, he, he, he shoves it at him. He says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus points out to the Pharisees, God's law, God's commands, they're there to help man, not burden him. Yet you add a burden to God's good command. God's commands are good. You know why so many people reject sometimes the Bible or the church without ever reading the Bible or going to church or maybe they had one bad experience? It's because of legalists who who add things on to God's law and, and add rules on to what he, his good commands to where it's impossible to keep. And it is such a burden of shame and guilt and conformity. Now, should we conform to God's law? Absolutely. But why? Because God changes us. Jesus changes our hearts and we live that out. Not to earn his favor, but in light of his favor. They were making obedience to God a burden they were. And this is what religious people do. This is what legalists do. They make obedience to God a burden. See, God created Sabbath, Jesus says, to be a help to man. It was to be a blessing. We already talked about a day, a day off. Woo! Right? But, but religion can't have that. Religion's all about work. Do enough good. The lie of religion is that I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the truth of the gospel is, no, I'm accepted because of what Jesus did, therefore I obey. I live from my identity, not to earn it. The Pharisees turn God's good command into a burden, and the people become slaves to these man-made rules. And they're creating work for people on a day that was meant for rest. Here's a few things I wrote down thinking about that this week. Religion says you're no good, so get away. Jesus says, I know exactly who you are. Come to me as you are. Religion, legalism says, get it right, then you can come to God. Maybe. For a while. 
until you mess up again. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, come to me. I will make you right with God forever. Period. Religion wears you out. Agreed? Jesus gives you rest. Religion beats you down. Jesus helps you up. Religion is a big bully. Jesus is a good big brother and a friend. Religion's yoke is uncomfortable and confining. A yoke is the thing placed on the ox to pull the cart, right? The yoke of religion, it's, it's confining and it's heavy and it's hard and it's painful. Jesus' yoke is easy. It's easy. It's freeing. Religion's burden is heavy, but Jesus' burden is light. In fact, here's how Jesus says all of those things in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. I love Isaiah 58, the translation in the message the paraphrase in the message, talking about the Sabbath and the goodness of the Sabbath and of God's rules and really of all of God's commands are good. Isaiah 58, starting in verse 13, says, If you watch your step on the Sabbath, God says, and don't use my holy day for personal advantage. If, if you treat the Sabbath as a day of joy, God's holy day as a day of celebration. If you honor it by refusing business as usual, making money, running here, running there, then you'll be free to enjoy God. Oh, I'll make you ride high and soar above it all. I'll make you feast on the inheritance of your ancestor Jacob. Yes, God says so. And Jesus ends then. He says, so, verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord then even of the Sabbath. You who think you're lords of the Sabbath with all your rules, guess what? The Sabbath was my idea. I set the rules. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I'm God again. Well, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Again, then, he enters the synagogue. It's on the Sabbath, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. There's religious people again. They always want to be judge and jury, right? They're watching. They're just, they're just waiting for you to mess up. They're just waiting. And they're following Jesus. They're watching him. And what this time? Well, this time to see whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him, so that they might bring a case against him, a legal case. And he says to the man with the withered hand, he says, come here. And then he says to them, he says to the Pharisees, to the scribes, the religious leaders, he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? What should somebody do on the Sabbath? Should they, should they kill somebody or should they save a life? Which one? And what do they do? What do they do? They just stand and stare at him silently like, I'm, I'm not going to answer that. They're just silent. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of like little kids. I think this analogy of, of little brothers and one following the other around, just looking for the opportunity to tattle on them, really falls right in line here, doesn't it? How many of you, parents, you've had young kids, and, 
and, and one of them comes in that you know they've done something wrong. You ask them, or, or maybe they're tattled on the other one. You say, well, okay, is it, which is wrong? Is it, is it wrong for him to, to save a life or to kill someone? Is it wrong for him to help someone or to harm someone? And they look at you, and they just don't want to answer. You ever have your kids do that? And they're just stubborn, and they forget this. What, how do you feel when that happens? You know they know the right answer, don't you? You know they know. You taught them. You know they know it, but they're just silent and they will not answer. They're so stubborn. How does it make you feel? As a parent, I'm not a parent yet. Look forward to that day. But as a parent, you would feel anger, wouldn't you? You little rat. And just spit it out. You know the answer. Why don't you? frustration. What else would it make you feel? Probably sadness, wouldn't it? Like, really? Come on, you know this. It, it, kind of, it might even kind of break your heart at different times when you face those things. Well, Jesus, who's our creator, who's our big brother, who, who loves us, he felt both of those emotions. They were silent and he looked around at them with anger but also grieved at their hardness of heart. He was angry with them, but he was also grieved for them. He felt compassion. And he says to the man, he says, stretch out your hand. And and he stretched out his hand, he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately, and they held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So they wouldn't answer the question, is it lawful to give life, to save life, or to kill on the Sabbath? But they were willing to go out and plot how to destroy life on the Sabbath, right? The hardness of their heart. Their legalism, their rules, their agenda, their power had had become the focus of their lives. And they ignored the command of, of the psalmist in Psalm 95 that... And you'll see it as you leave this morning if you head out the center doors. Today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Why? Because that grieves God. His commands are good for you. He wants you to respond because it's good. Now, the truth of the matter is that we, you know, I, I stand up here and I rail against the religious people, the legalists, right? And yet when I look in the mirror, there's a lot of days I see a religious person. And I see someone who defaults to legalism. Every one of us does. In fact, Luther, Martin Luther said in some of his writings that that's the default condition of the human heart is to revert back to religion, to revert back to religiosity, to legalism. Not, not exactly in that way he said it, but that's the, the gist of what he says. And it's because we, we revert back to our, our sinful nature and we want to earn our identity and we want to work hard to achieve God's favor when you're in Christ, you've been given a new identity and you need to live from that and not toward it. See, here's, here's a list um, that I had and I think I've shared this with you before. I'm not sure where I got it, but um, the actual list is called What's Wrong with Religious People? But I, I think I shared it as how to diagnose if you're, a, if you're a religious person or how to diagnose and recognize when you're a religious person. Maybe that's the better way to say it. Well, 
usually someone who's religious, number one, they're a negative person who's defined by what they're against. What do you know more for? What you're against or what you're for? Are you no more for what you want to fight over or what you want to promote? Are you no more for, for railing against sin or, or preaching Jesus' grace? That doesn't mean you don't rail against sin, right? It just means people, when they see you, they know you're about God's love and His grace. It's who, who you're for. Another one on this list, number two. Um, they're they're quote-unquote like single-issue voters. Like it's just this one issue and this issue, and I'm so bent on this, and you have to get this one right, and I don't care. I'm, I'm so, but he, he got everything right, but this one, I don't agree with him on this, so oh, I'm angry. Right? This one issue just defines everything in life. Do you find yourself like that? You wear yourself out. The third thing about when we're religious, a lot of times we fall into the trap of preaching but not practicing repentance. It's easy to tell everybody else to repent, especially for a preacher. But it's hard to practice repentance for any of us, isn't it? It's really hard to admit I'm wrong and I'm going the wrong way and I need to turn back to Jesus. I I find myself being religious when I prefer tidy answers over a messy life. When I just want to wrap it up in three bullet points when nobody's life is that simple. And there's a lot of mess in people and in myself that I need to love and care for. And really it's just laziness. I find myself being religious when I convert believers and not unbelievers. When I just argue with somebody who already knows the gospel about coming to my point of view on this little thing, but I'm not doing anything to go out and reach people with the gospel and bring them into the kingdom. I need to repent of each of these things. I'm, I'm religious. I find myself religious when I use the fear of man to bully and exhaust people. The religious people will pick fights with Jesus in public. The Pharisees do. They, they don't go to him and ask if they can sit down and work things out. The rare exceptions, Nicodemus, they just, they just want to bully him and exhaust people so that they just finally conform. I, I get religious when I confuse the principles of God's word with a method Methods are open hand, right? Principles and truth are closed hand. I fight over this. I, I hold on to this, but I, I recognize, you know what? This is just a good method of ministry. It's not necessarily gospel. And I find myself being religious when I labor to set the agenda and change the mission because that's what religious people do. Look, here's what they do here. They want to destroy Jesus. Well, Jesus has been spending his time doing good. You get to verse 7. He withdrew with his disciples after healing this man to the sea, to the lake of Galilee. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. All these people from all over the place are coming to follow and hang out with Jesus. Why? Well, it says when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. What's that tell you about what Jesus does? It tells me that Jesus' ministry, it was absolutely missional. It was going out caring for people, but it was also very attractional, wasn't it? It attracted people by him caring for and loving. It, don't buy into this idea that it's either I got to be a missional person or, I, or like a missional church or an attractional church. The gospel is both. Jesus' ministry is both. People were coming to him because they heard of all the things he's doing. 
And we see in Jesus here that I think the way to grow a church is to love God and love people. He's living out the great commandment. He loves God, but then he loves people. And the good way to kill a church is to love yourself and your rules. And not love God, but to love my rules and to love myself. To grow a church is to love God and love others. That's what Jesus did. See, because they were all coming to him when they heard what he was doing. Verse 9, and he told his disciples, have a boat ready. Because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had, he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Well, after this, he had spent time confronting the religious people, and in doing so, he shows grace and mercy and the goodness of of the gospel, loving God, loving others. People are attracted to him, and he withdraws, verse 13, and he went up on the mountain. He called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed there 12, whom he also named apostles or disciples. This is where Jesus appoints the 12 disciples, right before the Sermon on the Mount, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and they might have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12 he appointed them. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 6 that Jesus spent the entire night before this praying. And here's the 12. There's Simon, whom he gave the name Peter or Rock. There's James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. You know, I like Jesus. He, he gives people nicknames, right? Simon, I'm going to call you Rock. Rock. Right? You know what? Peter. And then James, look at this, John, James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James. So James, James and John, Zebedee's sons, I'm, you guys are the sons of thunder. I can see it in you. Curiously, when Jesus gives nicknames, gives nicknames, he gives ones that build people up, not to tear them down. And he builds into them with this. And some of you, I just think that title, Sons of Thunder, I was thinking about that this week. There's a handful of families in our church that have... Sons of Thunder. There's probably four or five families that could list them, right? God could do some great things in future generations in our church through those boys. Verse 18, Andrew and then Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who would betray him. As I said, we're not going to dive into all those things this morning, but what I wanted to show you is that Jesus confronts legalism and religion and religiosity with the truth of the gospel, which is grace, which is goodness, which is, is peace and freedom and not obeying man's rules, but loving God and loving others. And what we're going to see over the next couple months as we, as we look into uh, the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see Jesus' kingdom agenda laid out, how to live some of these things out, and, and uh, to honor him in these things. We covered a ton today. I realized that. And uh, even, even in thinking as, as I was this week, knowing there's a lot to cover, figuring out what to talk about, what not to talk about, where's some application for us? I think our application is this, is as we went through, when you find yourself being legalistic about things and, and loving uh, your rules or your way of doing things over Jesus himself, 
We need to repent of those things and recognize that and turn back to him and to a heart after his own. Jesus would say later that the greatest command is to love God and the second one, much like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing these things, you fulfill all of the law. So don't be a legalist. Love God, love others, and then you'll fulfill everything you're trying to do anyway. Just focus on those two. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. We'll close, and then next week we're going to launch into the Sermon on the Mount, a passage at a time, and uh, teach through that together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for uh, his courage to to confront um, the legalists, the religious people of his day. Thanks for the grace, though, too, in which he confronted them as an example to us when uh, both when we find ourselves being religious and legalistic about things that maybe aren't written in your word, uh, when we try to get off on technicalities rather than repenting, when uh, we hold ourselves to our own standard rather than yours, help us to repent so that we wouldn't find ourselves at the end of Jesus' rebuke. And also help us, too, then, as we confront those who are religious, who are legalistic, who need to turn to you and know your grace and know your goodness. Help us to do it in the way that Jesus does, with grace and with love and and with truth, ultimately. Sometimes it may feel harsh, but it's important to confront with truth. Father, just thank you so much for Jesus, for his example. I pray for us as a church that we would grow even as we study the Sermon on the Mount to be a a kingdom people, a strong outpost of your kingdom here, living those things out uh, among our community as a church and and our community uh, here in northern Indiana. And I pray that in doing so, many would see what you're doing in our church just as they saw the things that you were doing as you walked this earth, and they would be attracted to that so that they would come uh, here to learn about you and ultimately come to you and to know you. And Father, I pray for those maybe who hear my voice right now that if they haven't repented of their sin and trusted you, if they don't know you, maybe today would be the day they do. They would turn from trying to keep a list of rules and turn instead simply to your son that Jesus, they would repent of their sin and turn to you, that they would accept your payment on the cross for them and give you their life, that they would become a Christian and be in Christ. Father, thank you for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen.